Hi, and welcome to Behind the Leaves. I'm Joe. I'll be your host today. Now, one of the things that I I have to apologize for is the delay in this recording. Uh, it has been several months since our last um, episode on mental health and spirituality. So, <clears throat> what I'm proposing is that this be our second season, and we just pick up from here. And I will try to be more diligent in creating content, um, if not every week, every other week, for the masses. I, I want to try and make things right. And even though things have been kind of eh with COVID, uh, it is still spooky season. It's my favorite time of year, and I want to try and spread my love of not just spooky season, but of my cultural ancestry and about vampires today um, because what we have is a, a truly fascinating history of what vampires are where they come from what's the the possibility of their um, having um, some sort of connection not just with the Romani people but with our global history. Because almost every culture on Earth has a vampire-type entity. One of the earliest comes from India. The tales of Vetitalis, which were ghoulish beings that inhabited corpses. You know, these, these spirits, these ghouls that crawled into a fresh corpse and reanimated it. It's a prominent story in the Kethasari Sit Sagagara, if I said that right. If not, I'm sorry, Grandma. My Hindi really is awful. Uh, it tells of a king and his nightly quest to capture an elusive Vetitalis. Piscara, and the, the reunited spirits of evildoers, or those who died insane, also became vampires. Now, this is the first specific case where it is a corpse that comes to life. Older ones include... Samaria, the Persians, the Hebrews, the Egyptians, and the Greek. Now, these are all around the same time frame. Different names, different eras even, for you know Babylon versus Samaria, um, or Hebrews versus the Egyptians. Obviously, the Egyptians were there first. So they have older stories, like Sekhmet, the crocodile goddess, and Osiris, the mummy, the one who was torn apart and put back together and brought back to life. But in this, the Persians were one of the first civilizations to have tales of blood-drinking demons. Creatures attempting to drink blood from men were depicted on excavated pottery shards. In ancient Babylonia and Assyria, 
had tales of the mythical Lilitu, who's synonymous with the giving rise to Lilith of Hebrew myth. Now, for those of you who don't know who Lilith is, allow me to educate. Lilith is Adam's first wife. You'll see this in Genesis 1.1. And God created them man and woman. Later, in Genesis 2, God creates woman from Adam's rib. Aha! Why? Why is it that in the beginning, <laughs> God created man and woman together, and then just one chapter later, he created them separately, a woman from man. Well, according to Jewish mysticism and Jewish Midrash, which is um, the Apocrypha, the stories that fill in the gaps of the Bible, Lilith was created at the same time as Adam, but she refused to submit the first feminist, you might say. And she refused to be submissive to Adam. Adam said, lay down and let me lie upon you. And she said, why should you lie upon me? Why should I not lay upon you? Meaning, who is going to be on top, right? Well, she second-guessed that. And she said, I'm out. And when angels came to try to stop her leaving Eden, she said, no, I will not be his slave. And as punishment, God cursed Lilith that she would bear a child every day. And every day, that child would die. And that she would suffer the full pains of childbirth. And as retribution, Lilith made a deal with the angels that had tried to stop her that if God kills her babies, then she will kill Adam and Eve's. And they said, no, no, we can't allow that. But what we will allow is for you to take any child that does not have our name over their crib. And even today, Hasidic Jews will sometimes put a talisman of Lilith above the child's bed that will have the images of the three angels and Coptic. Um, and it, it's still today used as a, a ward against Lilith. She was the mother of demons, her children with Samael, the devil. Uh, God's bane is the translation of Samael. And she had children with that fallen angel. And she begat all of the incubus and 
all of the succubus who had no souls and so therefore could not die. And that was how she beats God, God's plan for her cursed offspring. So, side note, done and over with. <laughs> Back to the Assyrians, the Persians, and the Hebrews. Um, Lilith was considered a demon and was often depicted as subsisting on the blood of babies. And female shape-shifting, blood-drinking demons were said to roam the night among the population seeking victims. And that's according to Sefer Hasidism. Um, the creatures were called estries. And they were um, created uh, in the twilight hours before God rested. An injured estri could be healed by eating bread and salt given to them by her attacker. So, if you injured this, this creature, you could heal it by giving it salt and bread. Greco-Roman mythology described Empuse and the Lamia, which... For those who are familiar with the Romani people, or even just popular movies, the Lamia is often considered a demon or a spirit that the Romani consort with. You may recall the horribly racist movie, uh, Drag Me to Hell, in which a Romani woman curses a gaja with a non-Romani woman with a Lamia. Uh, there, there was also the Striges. Now, over the time, the two terms became general words to describe witches and demons, respectively. Striges and Lamia. Now, Empuse was the daughter of the goddess Hecate and was described as a demonic, bronze-footed creature. She feasted on blood by transforming into a young woman and seducing men as they slept before drinking their blood. Also similar to the succubus, who came in the night and spectrally rode a man until he ejaculated, having nocturnal emissions, and then feasting on his sperm, letting her be impregnated, and to carry on to have further demonic offspring, right? Because at this time, of course, any kind of ejaculation that was not intentional was the work of the devil. The Lamia preyed on young children, however, and the Lamia not only preyed on children in their beds at night by sucking their blood, it also colluded with uh, Jello, or Gilo. Like the Lamia, uh, they were considered to be um, feasted on children, but they also preyed on adults. So they were described as having the bodies of crows or birds in general, and were later incorporated into the Roman mythology as Strix, a kind of nocturnal bird that fed on human flesh. So, 
ancient world aside, let's get to the medieval period. Many myths surrounding vampires originated during the medieval period. Now, at this time is when the Ramani people left India, Persia, with, you know, common day Pakistan, Iran area, and started migrating. Now, we had spent generations, generations of, you know, it's been 2,000 years since we left, we left the Holy Land. And the reason we have the word gypsy is because the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, mind you, thought we were Egyptians that were cast out for harboring the infant Christ. Because remember, Christ was born on Christmas Day, and of course he then escaped into Egypt to escape the slaughter of the innocents. And the tribe in Egypt that held him and protected him and raised him were cast out to never have a home. So they thought the Romani people were Egyptians. And when we get the word Egyptia, Egypsy, meaning Egyptian. I am not Egyptian. I am Romani. My people come from India and Iran. We are not Egyptians. But gypsies, as we were called and persecuted for, were a major part in spreading news and spreading stories. Far from being just the belly dancers and fortune tellers, and yes, being accused of being thieves, we were also sought for for the horses that we raised and for our cultural importance and giving news. The people of a town or village might come see the caravan or the cupania that has come into town and or just outside of town because we were never allowed in the towns. But they might sneak away to, to go see the gypsies and then when everyone had their fill, we'd be chased out or burned out or attacked and forced to flee. Well, as you can imagine, in the medieval period, when Christianity had finally started to take firm hold of most of Europe and the, the Holy Land, the Mediterranean, many myths surrounding the vampires originated during that period, where we were you know, disseminating information. The 12th century British historian and chroniclers Walter Mapp and William of Newburgh recorded accounts of revenants. Now, revenants are what we would kind of think of as a zombie. Uh, a corpse brought back from the dead. Only revenants, depending on their place, uh, region, some maintained their intelligence, some maintained no intelligence. Some were just shambling corpses. Others were violent like, you know, fast-running, 28 Days Later-style zombies versus Night of the Living Dead. And then again, there were some that you wouldn't even know they were a revenant unless you knew who they were before they died. So, with 
Walter Mapp and William of Newburgh's account of the revenants. Uh, they recorded that those um, revenants and English legends of vampiric beings after that date are scant, right? So about the 12th century, England kind of cuts the list. But the Old Norse Draugr is another medieval example of an undead creature with similarities to vampires. Vampiric beings were rarely written about in Jewish literature. The 16th century rabbi David ben Solomon ibn Abi Zamari, Rabzad, Rad Baz, wrote of an uncharitable old woman whose body was unguarded and unburied for three days after she died, and she rose as a vampiric entity, killing hundreds of people. He linked this event to her lack of shimra, guarding after death, as the corpse could be a vessel for evil spirits. Vampires properly originating in folklore were widely reported in Eastern Europe in the late 17th and 18th centuries. Now I need you to understand that's the 1600s and the 1700s. And there's two very important things that led to these being popularized. Besides the the actual stories of vampires, the 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 historical shifts in England's monarchy, for instance, we have the Hanovers taking over the throne of England. They were Germans, and during this time, the German well, Prussian king was having the damnedest luck with vampires. The small folk of Austria and uh, Bavaria in particular were having large numbers of accused vampire attacks. So, let's kind of get into all this. The tales formed the basis of the vampire legend that later entered Germany and England, where they were subsequently embellished and popularized. One of the earliest recordings of vampire activity came from the region of Istria in modern Croatia in 1672. Local reports cited the local vampire uh, Hure Grando of the village of Kringa as the cause of panic among the villagers. A former peasant, Yuri died in 1656. Local villagers claimed he returned from the dead and began drinking blood from the people and sexually harassing his widow. The village leader ordered a stake to be driven through his heart. But when the method failed to kill the vampire, <laughs> when the method failed to kill him, they then had to go back and cut off his head. <laughs> He'd been dead for 20 years. Now, I think... Before we, we get into the 18th century, I kind of wanted to explain why people might have been thinking these sorts of things, okay? So, one of the things that we have to look at when we look at the origins of vampires is people's understanding of the natural world. Decomposition of a human body is one of the primary things that they would look for but they didn't really understand 
what they were looking for. Because they would use things like the perceived growing of hair, nails, and teeth as proof positive signs that somebody was a vampire. Or that bloating, a rudy color and complexion, um, you know, that the cheeks might be purple or might be red. Uh, that they might have, you know, blood on their lips or that they might make a sound, right? Like they're stirring or groaning, not realizing, of course, that the gases that build up inside of a human body have to escape somehow. They sometimes sound like flatulence. They sometimes sound like you're groaning. And if you were to put a stake or pierce the body in any way uh, in the chest cavity, then those gases would escape and they might move past the vocal cords, causing a gurring sound. Um, then there's the two other sorts of, of things. Decomposition in soil. Certain soil doesn't allow for decomposition. In fact, this was a problem that came across um, the, the tables of different patriarchs of Wallachia. Now, Wallachia, as you may be aware, is the home of Vlad Tepesh Draculia. And... We'll be getting to Dracula later, but I wanted to read you something that was said by um, the patriarch in 1652 of the Wallachian Vivodi Mati Besrab passed the first law that mentioned the belief in vampires in Romanian Strigori called Indrapatria Lagidi. The right making of the law. That's it's, it's rough, rough translation. The paragraph contains the opinion and recommendation of the patriarch Postinukul Basnikul Basnikul over the deceased, which they will learn to be Strigori, which is called Virkolkas or Vampir, and what needs to be done. Patrick proceeds in describing the belief. I have heard in many cities and towns it is said some dreadful things being done, which are below praise and great foolishness and lack of knowledge of people over the work of the devil. For that our enemy, the most unclean, the devil where he finds an empty place to dwell and do his will, there he indeed dwells and many times with deceiving apparitions towards lots of bad deeds he lures people and leads them towards his will in order that every wretch per, uh, people like them to sink and to drown in the depth of the damnation of the eternal fire. There are some foolish people that say that many times when people die, they rise and become strigori and kill those alive, which death comes in a violent and quick way towards many people. Now, it is important to note that during this time frame, it was illegal to tamper with the dead. 
any desecration of graves or digging up of bodies, not only was it a sin for which they would end up in hell, but it was also against the law and you could be tried and severely punished for it. Um, even though it was not permitted to desecrate the grave of the person in any way or to burn a dead body in any way, the patriarch offers some remedies in the event that such demonic apparitions happen. Uh, so he continues with, and then you must know if they will learn about such a dead body, which is the work of the devil, call the priest to read the Pacraclis of the Theotokos, and he shall perform the house blessing service and shall perform liturgy and make holy water in aid of everyone and shall give Koliva as alms and therefore he shall say the curse of the devil exorcism exorcism of St. John Chrysostom and both exorcisms performed at baptism you shall read towards the bones of the dead and then the holy water from the house blessing liturgy you shall splash the people which will happen to be there, and then more holy water you shall pour over the dead body, and with the gift of Christ, the devil shall perish. Right. So, that was the early stages. Um, in 1679, Philip B. Rohr devotes an essay to the dead who chew their shrouds in their graves as a subject resumed by Otto in 1732 and then by Michael Ranf in 1734. The subject was based on the observation that when digging up graves, it was discovered that some corpses had at some point either devoured the interior fabric of their coffin or their own limbs. Ranf described in this treatise a tradition in some parts of Germany that to prevent the dead from masticating, they placed a mound of dirt under their chin in the coffin place a piece of money and a stone in their mouth, or tied a handkerchief tightly around the throat. In 1732, an anonymous writer writing as the Dr. Wilmere discussed the non-putrefaction of these creatures from a theological standpoint of view. In 1733, Johann Christoph Herrenberg wrote a general treatise on vampirism, and the Marquis d'Angry cites local cases. Theologian and clergyman, clergyman also addressed the topic because one of the things with vampirism is, is that the body doesn't decompose and one of the, the sites that was viewed by the Catholic Church uh, is the non-decay of science. So some theological disputes arose. The non-decay of vampire bodies could recall the incorporation or incorrupt, incorruption of the bodies of the saints of the Catholic Church. A paragraph on vampires was included in the second edition in 1749 of De Sivorum Dei Benefictori et Sanctorum Canonizanti on the benefaction of the servants of God and on the canonization of the blessed. Written by Prospero Lambertini, Pope Benedict the 13th, 14th, sorry. Uh, in his opinion, while the incorruption of the bodies of the saints was the effect of a divine intervention, all the phenomena attributed to vampires was purely natural or the fruit of imagination, terror, and fear. In other words, 
vampires didn't exist. But we have to go back and forward just a bit because, remember, this is taking place with Germans, okay? And at the time of this being written, the English Civil War was going on. And Charles II was sacked and then executed. And despite having a rightful heir and his son, the English people and, well, the English, English aristocracy chose to pick up the monarchy with the descendants of Henry VIII's sister, uh, Mary, who had living descendants as the reigning monarchs of Hanover and Saxe-Coburg, Germany. So, Hanover comes to be king. And that's King George, ladies and gentlemen. King George I, the second, the third, and in fact, even our beloved Queen Elizabeth today are all Germans. And this caused two other uprisings and civil wars in English history with Scotland. But we won't get into that. What we will get into is that during this time, Germans were having problems with vampires. And the German king, whose cousin and one cousin and one brother were ruling in Germany, was getting told about it. And this leads us to how the Romani people spreading these news of vampires throughout the Baltics and then throughout the Norselands and throughout France and in Western Europe, moving into Eastern Europe, in that route between Wallachia, Romania, Turkey, Hungary, all the way up into Poland and Germany and what was Prussia and moving down in through Austria and France, Italy. We see this movement of our people moving and, and talking and these stories which have been being passed down for generations about undead beings that come back and not just hunt for people but drink blood. Two things that are intrinsic not to any other particular version of the vampire but the Indian version that the Romani people brought over and mixed in through hundreds of years, thousands of years at this point, um, of the current folklore around each of these cultures, you know, rise and fall of their beliefs and what undead things were. And so our folklore begat their folklore, which changed our folklore, which changed their folklore, and it kept growing back and forth, right? So, um, we then move through to England, and in 1819, so you figure 
30 years. 30 years after the word vampire first entered the lexicon. The Oxford English Dictionary dates the first appearance of the English word vampire, or vampire, in English from 1734, in a travelogue titled The Travels of Three English Gentlemen, published in the Hilarion Miscellany in 1745. Now, of course, vampires had already been discussed in French and German literature after Russia gained control of northern Serbia and Olitina with the treaties of Pasolovitz in 18, 1718. Officials noted the local practice of exhuming bodies and killing vampires. These reports, prepared between 1725 and 1732, received widespread publicity. The English term was derived possibly via the French vampire from the German wampir into a derived uh, early 18th century form of the Serbian word wapir. So, Figure 1734 was the first usage, with books being published as late as 1745 discussing the subject. The first fiction book, 1819, written by John Polidari, The Vampire, brought the vampire not just into the public consciousness of folklore, but into people's homes with its own unique kind of blending. Things like garlic, mirrors, holy water. These things have been said to be bane to different types of vampires throughout the millennia. Which I'm going to get into the, the medical side of things in just a minute. But... John Polidari wrote the first vampire novel. The second vampire novel was written by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu in 1872, 60 years later, almost 60 years later. Carmilla, a lesbian vampire story, which the fact that the character has desires for women is in fact a woman is important not only to LGBTQ literature, but also to horror literature and vampire literature, and can be seen in its information shown to kind of lead to other authors like Anne Rice and her ideas on what creates vampires. Next up is everyone's favorite, Bram Stoker's Dracula, written in 1897. And now, this is important because, as I mentioned, I would mention Dracula. Prince Vlad Tepes Draculia was a Wallachian prince. Wallachia sat between Hungary and Turkey. And Wallachia was often changing sides, making promises to the Ottomans and then making promises to the Hungarians. Vlad Tepes Draculia was a Catholic prince but, first and foremost, he was a pragmatist. And he did have the unfortunate moniker of the Impaler because he had impaled many Turks. 
And in that, when he died, people were still terrified of him. And the small folk in Wallachia, which is now in Romania, um, they had stories. And Bram Stoker, having traveled around the area trying to drum up things, came across the story of Vlad Tapesh Draculia. Draculia means son of the dragon. And Vlad Tapesh was the son of his father, who was of the order of the dragon, and his chivalric, uh, chivalric uh, duties. He was a knight of the dragon, and so had gone through the Holy Lands, and he had used Draculia as a moniker to denote that he was his father's son and had his father's power. So, that is how we get Dracula, and how Dracula infested the public mind was astonishing. We have Dracula in every aspect of life. It's on children's cereal boxes. It's everyone's go-to vampire Halloween costume. All you need is a little bit of fangs and some blood on your mouth. And there you are, black hairspray or your comb, hair combed back and a cape. Always a cape. Now, how does that come into modern fiction? Things like dusting, where you put the stake through a vampire's heart and it just turns to dust. All myths created by the traditional practices of staking corpses, but brought to fruition through Bram Stoker's Dracula. And so that is how the Romani people are responsible for the Western belief of vampires as we see them today.